0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm speaking with Claire Wendland about her new book, Partial Stories, Maternal Death from Six Angles, published by the University of Chicago Press in April 2022. Claire Wendland is professor in the Departments of Anthropology and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She's also the author of A Heart for the Work, Journeys Through an African Medical School, the first ethnography of a medical school in the global South, which I'm also looking forward to reading.
1: Uh, So, Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have you here today. And I have to begin by saying that I really enjoyed reading this book. And as much as I've enjoyed reading any book for this podcast or any book that I've read recently, actually... Um, Yeah, you're welcome. I'd say accessible is probably not the right word, but it's it's a book that to me speaks to the reader's humanity, at least as much as it speaks to their intellect. And I really wanted to know what was going to happen next, even though you say in the introduction that every chapter can stand alone, but still I wanted to know what I was going to find out next and what you were going to tell us next. And I, I really cared about everyone who appeared in the book, the, you know, the women who died, the women who had pregnancy problems, but but also all the people that were trying to take care of them. So, um, yeah, it, it's an academic work, but I think it speaks beyond academia. Uh, so just to begin, Claire, back to you, would you tell us a bit about your background and how you became involved with birth
1: and death in Malawi? Sure. Sure. Um- I'm now a medical anthropologist, so I study the ways that social structures and cultural practices affect people's health. But that is a second career for me. My first was as a doctor, and that's what originally brought me to this topic and also what originally brought me to Malawi. So for the last few months of my very last year in medical school, which was way back in 1990, I had this opportunity to go to Malawi through, in some ways this really happened through a string of coincidences. I wound up on the obstetrics and gynecology ward of a big urban hospital in Malawi. I was with a couple of other American and Dutch medical students working under the supervision of three doctors and a handful of midwives. And at the time, there were roughly 10,000 births a year there. So it was an incredibly busy place. And there were something around 60 to 100 maternal deaths a year, too. It was a, an unforgettable experience, and it was really a sobering experience as well. Years later, Malawi established its own medical school, and I was able to go back this time to learn about how medical students learn to be doctors there. Now, by then, I was myself an experienced obstetrician gynecologist. I had gone through my residency training and had been practicing for some years on the Navajo reservation. Um, And one of the conditions that my Malawian colleagues set was that I needed to work on the wards and the clinics and in the operating theaters myself. So I wasn't actually studying birth and death then. I was studying medical training, and that's the the research project that ended in the the other book that I've written, A Heart for the Work. But I couldn't help but think about birth and death because they were all around me, and I was struck um, just sort of casually by how people explained them. So some of the ways people explained them were really familiar to me from my work in the U.S., where there also you know there's also a fair amount of birth and death, but some of the ways seemed really different. So in later years, once I had also trained as a medical anthropologist, I was able to go back and learn from the many people who were trying to explain maternal death and trying to make pregnancy safer in Malawi.
0: Hmm, That's really interesting. And you tell a lot of stories in the book. It's called partial stories, and there are a lot of stories. Uh, And indeed, they're very partial in the sense that often we don't have a lot of facts about the women or what happened to them, and sometimes we don't even know the outcome where did the woman go, for instance, and did she live or die? Um, So that's one sense of partial. But as you show in the book, the idea is more nuanced than that. So would you explain what you mean by partial stories and why you chose
1: that as your approach? So the word partial has two meanings, of course, right? In one sense, it means incomplete. So all stories are incomplete. But what's in them and what isn't in them is not random. So you can think about, um, for instance, in Malawi and in many other countries, the whole record of a woman's labor and delivery when she comes to a hospital to deliver, to deliver gets charted on a single piece of paper that's called a partograph, or some places some places it's called a partogram. So that includes um, it includes essential things like how strong are her contractions over time, how frequent are frequent are they, what's her pulse, what's her blood pressure, how much is her cervix dilated? What's the fetal heart rate and the fetus's descent in the pelvis? So you have this whole record there. If a woman dies in labor or shortly thereafter, you can learn a lot from the story that the partograph tells, but it's also incomplete. There's no record of her social circumstances, the support or lack of support she has, is anybody with her when she delivers or even the staffing level on the ward where she is. So that's an incomplete story. Now, you learn really different things from a politician's speech about maternal health, or a mathematical modeling equation that gets used to estimate maternal mortality, or a poem about an undersupplied maternity ward, or a proverb about pregnancy, or a mother's account of her own daughter's death after childbirth. And each of these is an example that's discussed in the book all of them are incomplete. And yet by layering them together, I think we start to see a bigger picture about the relationships that keep people safe and the forces that put them in danger. So that's one sense of partial, but partial in the second sense means interested. So think about the phrase, an impartial witness or an impartial judge, right? That's somebody for whom nothing is at stake. I don't, I've been thinking about this for a while and I don't actually think there is an impartial story about maternal death. Pretty much everybody who tells stories has something at stake. The book's last chapter, for instance, shows how stories about what kinds of care were dangerous and what kinds of care were safe served the interests of various experts. So I chose this title, Partial Stories, because I find it really useful in this context and in other ones, of of course, too, to think through Always remember to think through both what's incomplete about stories and what's at stake for the tellers and listeners. And that allows me to learn from them in a different way than if I only focus on what's true or false about a story. Yeah,
0: and one important thing about this book, I think, is that while um, you have named all these different ways of looking at what happens from the partagraph to the poem to the proverb to the, the mom's account... Uh, so the book and you provide all these different layers of stories, but but no other actor who's involved has all those stories. They right. have one, maybe, at best. Right.
1: One or two, maybe. Right.
0: So sticking with stories, uh, as you demonstrate in the book – There are multiple and diverse perspectives when it comes to telling a story. And as you just said, there are multiple and diverse ways of telling a story. You mentioned the partograph. To me, one of the most intriguing was the medical shorthand that doctors and um, doctors in training use when they're presenting, let's say, a case study for morbidity and mortality um, ground rounds. uh, or I can't remember what you call them. Uh, But that shorthand, you use it to introduce four cases of maternal death in chapter two. And it seems to me a telling example of how important it is to consider what's included and what's not included in accounts of maternal death. And I wondered if you comment on that, uh, and also on the dynamic between that sort of quantitative accounting versus more qualitative reporting.
1: Sure. I'd be glad to. Let me start with the the medical case history and what it is. So medical people learn to tell stories in a particular way, which is the key case history, and we're explicitly taught this. Learning this genre of storytelling is a really key part of training when you're a medical student and then later when you're an intern. It's It's really stylized and it's really compressed, even more so in writing where there's a whole bunch of ad- abbreviations that get used. But also in speech, and it's very efficient at getting across key facts that any doctor or midwife would need to know. So let me give you an example of this. I might say, for instance, this patient is a 25-year-old G3P2 at 12 weeks EGA by LMP who presents with vaginal bleeding, unstable vitals, and an open os. So that's a case history. It compresses the whole story of an impending miscarriage. It's one sentence of medical jargon, But the person who understands that jargon instantly knows what kind of medical interventions are needed and how fast. So in this case, very fast. But it leaves out a patient's social, political, or economic world. And in fact, it also leaves out the social, political, and economic conditions under which the doctors and midwives and other staff are functioning. So I don't know from this case history how likely it is that the patient might have sought out an unsafe abortion, or whether she'd first gone to a traditional healer for care, or how long it took her to reach help once she started bleeding, or whether it's going to be possible to get a blood transfusion rapidly. I don't know whether the operating room is functional. I don't know whether anybody came with her who can help her get the medications and supplies she might need. So this case history is super useful. It's a useful genre of story, but like all the other kinds of stories, it's partial. So if you're trying to understand patterns of death from case histories, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to miss a whole bunch of factories that are in fact key to determining who lives and who dies. So this, I think, relates to the other part of your question about the dynamic between quantitative and qualitative reports. Even case histories, they do have a bit of both, right? The metrics that are typically used in reporting about maternal deaths, though, are purely quantitative. So you've probably heard things, well, I know that you've actually just read things, like Malawi's maternal mortality rates are more than double the world average. Or you might hear maternal mortality in the U.S. has risen dramatically in recent years, and Black women are three times more likely to die than white women. These quantitative measures, these numbers, are really important to understanding who is dying, where but the qualitative accounts can also teach us something about why. So here I think an example from the US is helpful. The work of journalists and anthropologists was critical in turning attention to the role of racism, American racism in general, and medical racism specifically in maternal death and injury for black women. So here I'm thinking for instance of Donna Ein Davis's work, Reproductive Injustice, and there was a great uh, series of reports by. ProPublica reporters um, on maternal death back a few years ago. And both of these drew attention to processes that happened inside hospitals and outside in the social world that were just invisible in statistics and also invisible in case histories. So it's really important, I think, to have both the qualitative and the quantitative. We can study them both critically, and we can use each of them to examine the other more closely and to fill in the pieces that the other one doesn't have.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. And and some things you just mentioned there, just, is there a possibility of getting the blood transfusion? Is the operating room working? Did the family, whoever comes with the woman bring supplies they need? That brings up how much resources were a problem in these stories. And in chapter four, uh, which is called Abundant Scarcity, you discuss how medical enclaves limit access to effective care in almost, it seems like, random ways. And one striking example was transnational clinical research. I know certainly in Europe and the U.S., we tend to think of these international research projects as benevolent, doing a good thing. But would you give an example of some of their effects on the ground and how it's maybe more ambivalent?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, They're complicated, right? So international research efforts, like international humanitarian projects, which, with which they're often entwined more than you might think, they've been really important in Malawi. So in Chapter 4, I describe some of their effects. So, for example, a project run, a research project run by Doctors Without Borders that was at once a research and humanitarian endeavor demonstrated very clearly that poor people could take antiretroviral drugs and have good outcomes for HIV that demonstration was critical. It helped to convince funders that these medications could and should be used in Malawi and similar places. But in many places where resources are limited, research projects and humanitarian aid sites become the only places to get certain kinds of care. And that can be problematic in a number of ways. So for instance, if funding is short-lived, as it often is, it often runs on these short two- or three-year cycles, it can strand people without care. So I'm thinking here of a project on cervical cancer screening that came to an end with no provisions for follow-up in place. So now you have women who have been told they have an abnormal cervical cancer screen that needs follow-up, but there's no way to get it. Or can mean that people in one town can get medical care that is simply unavailable to people in another town. This isn't, by the way, limited to medicine. It also means commonly that poor girls can get scholarships to go to school, secondary school, but poor boys can't. So these enclaves of care create a lot of inequities and uncertainties and tensions. But I can't condemn them out of hand either. Over time, some of them mark out pathways for what's possible, and some of those possibilities then reach much larger communities. So one good example of this from Malawi is the Ministry of Health in Malawi pioneered a lower cost way to deliver HIV treatment to pregnant women. The technique was tested in enclaves in a couple of districts, then it was expanded to the whole country over the space of a couple of years, and it's now used in many places internationally. So it's made a huge difference for many families, and it started in a research enclave. So these, you know, they're ambivalent and complicated phenomena. Mm. And I
0: think particularly throughout Africa, that is true. But I think, isn't it also true in the U.S. that research creates enclaves of access to care for people? I'm thinking of cancer patients, for instance, who... Absolutely. If they're Yeah, if they're well-connected and well-switched in, they may have access to all kinds of... Uh, possibly groundbreaking research.
1: Right. And uh, not not even just cancer patients, right? So in my own town here in Madison, there's a, um, oh man, I'm forgetting the term that it's called, but it's basically a, it's, it's a corporation that manages uh, clinical research projects. And basically if you're super poor or you're homeless or you're a grad student who doesn't have a lot of money and it's summertime or, right, you can actually go and sign up for a research project and you'll get you know, you may get some medical care, you will get some screening, testing, et cetera. So it's a research project, but it's also sort of care, right? Yes, yes. And I think that's
0: the only way that some people are able to get care. another condition I'm thinking of for is depression.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um. you've probably gotten the, the, the recruitment emails, right? Um, do you have a kid with depression or do you have depression yourself come sign up for our study and we'll you know give you a free investigation yeah exactly
0: well there's something else about those research projects so i just touch on because you mentioned the the medical imaginary connected to oncology research um that idea that there is just over the horizon we're going to end cancer you know as, as many of the big uh Care and, and treatment and uh, research institutes will say, uh, you know, MD Anderson is is going to stamp out cancer, and I, of course, um, that's that's the the holy grail, maybe. But I think a lot of patients go into it, maybe researchers go into it, thinking that that's around the corner. And yet, as you say, so often a lot of those things just don't work, or they don't work for the majority of people in the study,
1: right? Or or they have terrible side effects that are actually worse than the cancer itself. There's an anthropologist, Mary Jo Delvecchio-Good, who's written, I mean, the medical imaginary is her idea, and she actually draws it from American oncology. So it's all about this idea that it's just around the corner, this cure, and we're almost there and we can reach it, but never we're never quite there.
0: Yeah. I, I love that term. <laughs>
1: it just is encapsulates so much. Right. And it gives us hope, right? But it also has consequences that are not so hopeful.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, So talking about technology, in chapter three, you discuss what you call ambivalent technologies. And if anyone's wondering what that is, Caesarean section is one example. It's probably the best known example. And it also figures prominently in the central story that you tell of this woman, Faith Chisoni. So what is the ambivalence surrounding Caesareans in Malawi?
1: I would say that over the years, one of the most important things I've learned from Malawian thinkers is that pretty much any specialized healing technology is ambivalent. That is, they heal and they also harm. So in the chapter, I'm making this case for a particular herbal treatment called Mwanampepo, which is very helpful and also quite dangerous. And for a pharmaceutical called misoprostol, if you're European or misoprostol, if you're American, and for a number of other technologies. And for me, cesarean is a really good example. It can absolutely save a life or two lives, and it can absolutely be deadly too. It's a little tempting, I think, to imagine that cesarean is life-saving when it's used appropriately and dangerous when it's used inappropriately. But in fact, even when cesarean is completely necessary and appropriate, it's also dangerous. So in the book, I use the example of obstructed labor. What is that? Well, sometimes labor just gets stuck. The fetus doesn't descend well, or the cervix doesn't dilate enough. Maybe the fetus is in some funky position, or maybe the mother is really small, but sometimes it's just not clear why, but labor isn't working for some reason. Traditional birth attendants, nurse, midwives, and doctors who talked to me all spoke of this situation with dread. If it proceeds for too long, a woman's uterus can rupture. That's life-threatening for both mother and child anywhere. And in Malawi, it's usually deadly. To prevent it, you have to identify obstructed labor early and intervene. And typically that intervention is with a cesarean section. But cesarean is a major abdominal surgery. People can hemorrhage, they can get infected. More rarely, they can experience lethal damage to other organs. Even when everything goes perfect, perfectly though, The wound on the uterus itself heals, but doesn't heal back as strong as the rest of the uterine muscle. So now in any subsequent pregnancy, that scarred spot is at risk of rupturing, again, with potentially deadly consequences for both mother and fetus. So my own notes from Malawi include records of four deaths related to uterine ruptures. Two of them were from obstructed labor and two of them were from prior cesarean surgery. The same surgery that is life saving is also lethal, and that's what I mean by an ambivalent technology.
0: Hey, to what extent is that true in the global north as well? Because I know that it's cesarean's controversial in in the U.S. and in in Britain where I live. And actually, though, in Britain now there there's been some talk of they're not doing enough C sections. Oh,
1: that's interesting. So, Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, it is. Because I, I know that before that, the trend was, well, we're doing too many. And that's what I've heard in the US. Um, here, they're saying that they've told women, no, you know, wait it out, you don't need one, and they should intervene more quickly. But I mean, it seems like it's controversial here
1: as well. It is controversial. It's it's sometimes really hard to see, to to understand when a cesarean is necessary, and when you can wait it out a little bit longer, there's lots of controversy in the obstetrical literature on this in in OB scholarship. Um, for years the World Health Organization said, well, you know we think 15% of deliveries being by c-section is probably about the right number. It's not at all clear that that makes sense and it's that if you if you're doing c-section on the wrong 15% that's that's not good either right So having some benchmark number, may not be the way to go. Um, I could tell you that in the U.S., uterine rupture, it's its almost 100% from prior C-section. It is a, f- a very problematic condition. It's not the only problematic condition that results from previous C-section, but it is, it is a pretty scary one. Um, and they're almost all from previous C-section. So, and the best... I think the best guidance here that we're seeing in the U.S. is about trying to avoid the very first C-section. So um, trying to not be too hasty to cut uh, with a woman's first pregnancy um, can make a big difference for her subsequent, um, what would you call it? Her subsequent reproductive life, I guess, and her subsequent health.
0: And you mentioned in the book that in Malawi, it was for for a time standard, if a woman had had a certain number of pregnancies, like it was three or four, that they would um, then do a hysterectomy. Mm,
1: no. So if a woman had had three cesarean sections- Or they told her not to get pregnant again. Is that it? If a woman had Sorry. had three cesarean sections on the third cesarean, way back in the day when I was first there as a medical student, the third cesarean, they would do a tubal. So a not tubal, a hysterectomy, sorry. but yeah. no, that's okay. Yeah. But a tubal. This is not unique to Malawi. This used to happen in a lot of places. And then over time that got to be more controversial. And in, I I don't have any proof of this, but I, I think that part of it becoming controversial is for a long time most of the obstetricians who were in Malawi were Europeans. And as the as now they're almost all Malawians, um some people from elsewhere, but almost all Malawians. And it, you know, I think the Malawian doctors were less likely to feel casual about, about their fellow citizens' fertility than the Europeans were. So uh, I would say now it's much more common to strongly encourage a woman to have a tubal with her third cesarean, just because the risks of uterine rupture in a subsequent pregnancy are really high. Um, but But it's extremely rare to do that without consent. Now, interesting,
0: um, and w- would that be true um, in the
1: U.S. as well? I th- women are certainly counseled to about the dangers of a of a repeat of of um, continued pregnancies after the second or third cesarean. Um, but you know, I don't think I don't think the degree of Um, urging people to get a tubal is as strong in the U S but that's also in part because the likelihood of someone being able to start into labor and go immediately to a hospital is, is better here in most places, maybe not so much in some rural places. Um, but, but it's better in general, uh, transportation and easy access to emergency obstetric care is, is, is stronger, I would say here. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah so numbers you're really good with numbers um and i was impressed particularly by the chapter on epidemiological assessments which is called countless accountings and one thing i liked about this chapter was you both used statistical rigor and you dismantled statistical rigor in it Uh, and what jumped out at me most was the section called estimates built upon estimates which followed a detailed explanation of some intimidating, at least to me, mathematical equations. And the point was that all those carefully calculated numbers in the equation and the numbers those numbers were based on were not direct measurements, but they were estimates, which was kind of an eye opener to me. Um, so if you could sum up, Claire, what effect does all this estimation have on real world outcomes?
1: So by the way, those equations are intimidating to me too, but. The kind, one one part of the point of the chapter is like you know we obstetricians we anthropologists we we ordinary citizens who want to understand this like we need to not be intimidated you can you can take them apart piece by piece you can talk to a friendly epidemiologist who will explain this stuff to you and you can think about it so I think paradoxically the estimation creates a false sense of certainty. So, people who are close to the production of these numbers know very well how uncertain they are. They write about it in methods papers and statistics journals. They write about it in the online web appendices in medical journals that not very many people read. So, the uncertainties built into this estimating process are not secrets, not at all, but they are kind of buried in these alarming looking equations and in technical language and obscure journals. So, just one step away from the production of these numbers the numbers start to look like facts. Public health experts say that what counts is what you count. Quantitative figures, even when they're really wobbly numbers, estimates built from estimates, they look like counts and so they count. They draw attention to certain problems, they shape policies and interventions, they determine funding streams, and they connect, in our heads, they connect health outcomes to other factors, often implying some kind of causal link. So they matter not just for our measures of suffering and death, but for our explanations of why it occurs and what strategies will be most effective to help. So that's all pretty abstract. So maybe an example would be useful for this in some of the equations used to estimate maternal mortality in Malawi percentage of facility birth is an input into the e- equation in other words you use the proportion of births that happen in hospitals out of all births which is by the way an estimate that proportion to estimate the number of maternal deaths but then the number of deaths is used to argue for the importance of facility births that's circular reasoning that's a tautology But unless you look pretty closely at the equations, you don't recognize that this circular reasoning is happening. And you can quite reasonably think, hey, if we just get more births into hospitals, we're going to solve this problem. Meanwhile, there are no measures, not even estimates, of women's autonomy or of sexism or of medical racism or obstetric violence. And so a whole bunch of things that might very much matter for maternal survival are nowhere in the equation and won't affect the estimates at all. Yeah,
0: it's like when I used to get... Uh, surveys from my healthcare provider when I lived in California and after I'd had a hospital visit. And I would be so annoyed because I'd say, you're asking me the wrong questions. (laughs) I have a lot of things I want to say to you, but you're not asking me those questions. Right.
1: Right. I came back from, I came back from actually from Malawi once and I got really sick um, quite within a day or two of being back. And I went to urgent care and I you know, they drew my blood. They did all this stuff. They decided I didn't have malaria or anything else. And, um, you know, then, then sent me home and I got a survey and, and the, the, the doc never touched me. I mean, no physical exam whatsoever. Nobody put their hand on my abdomen to see if I had abdominal pain. I mean, none of the stuff that, I think any reasonable physician would do. So I got the survey and I was like, and it was like, did they greet you? Did they ask your date of birth? Did they, you know, were they nice? And like, yes, they were nice, but it was right. crappy <laughs> medical care. So and there's no place exactly. to comment on this. So yeah, exactly. That's a good example. Yeah. A few open ended questions with help or <laughs> right. just, just boxes for right. comments.
0: Right. Yeah. Um, But but that's really important, you know, the statistical thing, because as you say, that's what all policy seems to be based on and decisions seem to be based on. and, And it's kind of frightening to think that we're not really, most of us are not really thinking about what's behind those numbers or don't know.
1: Right. That's why this can't, these kinds of important decisions, I think, can't be left to one category of expert. It's just you know, you have to tackle complex problems from a set of, um, from a diverse range of perspectives. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in this book, but I think it's, it's applicable to many other problems as well.
0: So one thing I wanted to get to is a theme that runs throughout the book, and that's the tension between various forms of maternal care and their status as relates to what we might call professionalism. For instance, there there are doctors, there are nurses, there are medical personnel with various degrees of training, and then there are other non-medical personnel with various approaches and various degrees of training as well. And you really delve into this in Chapter 6, which is called "A Fragile Authority, another really good name. Uh, When you tell the tale of the rise and fall of traditional birth attendants, or TBAs as they're known, uh, I found this really fascinating and I wonder if you tell us what happened with the TBAs, you know, who they were, what happened with them. Uh, and also
1: their effect for better and worse on maternal health care. Sure. Uh, but I have to warn you this is a long story. Oh, um, go ahead. <laughs> I, I'll I'll try to keep it to the more abbreviated side. But in the 1970s, not when you think about this, this is not long after a wave of decolonization in much of Africa, so lots of newly independent states trying to develop and design their medical systems. Demand for medical care at birth was high and money for training nurse midwives and doctors was quite scarce. So one widely promoted scheme for resolving this dilemma was to train village women in the rudiments of safe maternity care. The assumption was that there were these people already out there who were attending births. These were people who got the label traditional birth attendants" or TBAs for short. That's a label that was uh, made up by the World Health Organization. And then the idea was that if you taught these TBAs how to do what they were doing more safely and also how to identify problem cases that ought to deliver at a hospital, they could become the first line of safe motherhood, especially in rural areas and they'd probably be more culturally appropriate too. So the World Health Organization had a lot of enthusiasm for this kind of approach and it was promoted, especially in Africa and Southeast Asia. In the late 1970s and early 80s, Malawi became a pioneer in TBA training with really ambitious plans to train and register with the government every traditional birth attendant in the country. The plans were complicated. They were never really implemented fully. It was really hard to pull off. And when you think about it, the same conditions of scarcity that created the need for trained TBAs also ensured that there wasn't really enough money and there weren't really enough people to do it thoroughly or to follow up carefully. So over the decades that followed, dissatisfaction with the TBA programs grew among medical staff. A few of the people, a few of the medically trained people who talked to me about maternal death said that the existence of TBA training programs made it possible for officials to say, look, look, we're doing something about safe motherhood but without doing the necessary but much more expensive things, like training enough nurse midwives and supplying hospitals and clinics effectively. So about 25 years after the programs had begun, the person who was president then suddenly announced that traditional birth attendance would now be illegal and all training programs would stop. That ban was reversed two years later, but the links between TBAs and hospitals, which in most areas were already not terrifically strong, were now entirely broken by that two years of a ban. And the work of the TBAs was left in legal limbo. So in some, um, in some districts, they were still illegal. In others, it was not clear. In others, they were tolerated as long as you weren't too open about it. So this left a really messy situation. Rural hospitals, meanwhile, had not been strengthened. There still weren't nearly enough nurse midwives trained. But now in many places, a woman could be fined for seeking out a TBA, and a TBA could be threatened with jail for helping a pregnant woman. So the Malawian scholar, Evelyn Chitsabanda Banda, found in the, that in the district that was probably most famous for its efforts in safe motherhood, that probably handled this most successfully, nurses still described many more babies born on the way to clinics and hospitals, many more so-called floor births, so unattended births inside clinics on the floor. Former traditional birth attendants meanwhile described how awful it was to turn away women who obviously needed help or to help them secretly and in fear. Since the ban, it's true that the proportion of births that happens inside facilities has really shot up in Malawi. It is not clear that this help delivery becomes safer though. So my focus in the book's last chapter is actually on the role that stories about dangerous care played in this whole set of events. TBAs that I talked to, some of them blamed hospitals for insensitive and uncaring care. So some of them told stories about too much cutting, whether cesarean or episiotomy. Others told stories about women who went to the hospital but were neglected there, had those floor births, right? Unattended births inside the hospital. Meanwhile, some hospital workers and many policymakers blamed TBAs for dangerous practices and justified those fines and bans with stories about unsafe care and dangerous herbal treatments. So in this case, stories really legitimated some people's authority and undermined others.
0: And so that was the 1970s. Was that connected to the Alma Ata
1: Declaration? Um, I think it was. So the Alma Ata Declaration, um, which is 1978, right? Um, it part of the part of the part of the principle of the Alma Ata. Alma-Ada declaration was that robust primary care delivered to everybody was going to be the key to achieving health for all by the year 2000. Um, And In many places, TBAs were considered to be part of this primary care network, maybe a sort of peripheral part, like right? A sort of a borderline part. Are they medical or are they not? They were always this uncomfortable category, um, even in the countries in which they were used the most successfully. Um, But yeah, it was connected, I think, to the Alma-Ada Declaration. In Malawi, certainly the timing was very much, uh, was very much connected to it.
0: It made me think of the Barefoot Doctors of Mao's China, um, which was kind of a similar initiative but much broader. I mean, it was very, very broad in China, and um, but very highly promoted. And on the international public health arena, it was very highly promoted.
1: Right, we're um, seeing some of this promotion still. I think there's, you know, the the one million community health workers project. Um, uh, there's a lot of focus oh, well, there's there's been a lot of focus during the pandemic on the importance of community health workers. And community health workers are super important. And there are also a lot of issues about, um, hmm, how can I say this? So sometimes I think think some policymakers see community health workers as important because they're very cheap, um, potentially even free. If you can get community health workers to volunteer so Kenny Mace has written about this in Ethiopia um, you know the idea is that they'll have um, elevated social status from volunteering as community health workers without incurring costs for the government but it's a lot of work <laughs> to be a good community health worker right so in Malawi the community health workers are 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 mostly now th- these this stratum called health surveillance assistance. And they are really hardworking. They do a ton of work. How much training do they need? How much backup do they need? How are they to be supplied? What is beyond their purview and what should be within it? All of these are really complex complex questions. I don't think they're easy to answer. Um, so I don't think that this uh, is really a magic bullet solution. It, but there's a reason for the longstanding focus on community health workers. And I think this is you know, something that's still that still needs more thinking and maybe we can learn from both success stories and and stories of failure.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's always that dynamic of tension between the medical professionals and then the paraprofessionals or non-professionals and um, as you say, who's who's got authority, but who's even considered effective or even dangerous or not. But but as you mentioned, some of the um, TBAs or, or people working in more indigenous medicine or non-professionals consider what the medical professionals are doing to be dangerous in many case And in many cases it is. It may, may be more effective also, but it's probably both more dangerous and more effective in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah. I mean, I th- there's a huge variety of care provided by medical providers and a huge variety of care provided by TBAs. I mean, I spoke to some TBAs in which, for whom I was thinking like, ah, you know, if you had good backup, I would send my sister to you. You know, they were, they were so experienced and so, so wise. And I spoke to some TBAs that I was like, oh, dear God, right? So the the obstetrician side of me was very frightened by what they were doing. But the same is true of the medically trained people. There's a huge variety of care that happens under the, uh, that happens under doctors and nurse midwives too. It's really, really varied. And some of it is superb. And some of it's not so great.
0: Yeah, and then it's hard for the, um, the patient or the layperson to know when there are so many different forms, what's what's the right thing to do? What's
1: the optimal or the best thing to do? Right. I think this is really hard. And I think this is hard everywhere. This is not a Malawian, you know, a uniquely Malawian phenomenon at all. It's a, There's a very similar set of questions that go into deciding, you know, where and with whom one might want to give birth here in Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, I don't know if it's an increasing number. It seems like possibly um, an increasing number of experts who are out there who are offering all sorts of health care, including certainly fertility and and, uh, maternity, birth doulas and other kinds of people. Yeah. So that just brings me back to danger or safety. And one thing I felt really strongly while reading this book uh, was a new sense of how very precarious pregnancy is. And I, I think anybody who's been a, involved in pregnancy or been pregnant themselves has a sense of the uncertainty that's there and the worries that occur. But this was a, a lot more than that. And in fact, many authorities throughout the book warned that to be pregnant in Malawi is dangerous. So, I get to the end of the book and I have to admit, I felt a bit turned on my head because I get to the last two pages and and you emphasize that in your words, most births happen smoothly. Uh, And you say that cumulatively, the stories presented here risk creating a false picture of birth as inherently dangerous. Uh, So my question for you is, as an OBGYN and medical anthropologist, what is your sense of the balance between potential risk and potential joy in pregnancy? And I guess I'm speaking more from a kind of collective social standpoint than from an individual standpoint.
1: Yeah, this is, first of all, I'm sorry for turning you on your head. Um, It's such a great question. And it's also a complicated one. And I, I I think it really has everything to do with my own partiality and limitations as a storyteller. So as an obstetrician, I was trained to look for danger, to avert it wherever possible, to manage it where necessary. And I think I got pretty good at doing just that. But the risk is when you're trained to look for danger and your professional identity is built around managing it, you might start seeing danger everywhere. So whether you're an experienced obstetrician or an experienced traditional birth attendant, you might start to intervene where it isn't actually necessary. Sometimes you might even cause dangerous situations with your own interventions. So we say that good midwives and obstetricians have good hands. So that means hands as both diagnostic and therapeutic tools. We know how to interpret what we're feeling through our hands and to use our hands and sometimes our scalpels and sutures and other tools to solve problems. But to be a good midwife or obstetrician, you not only need to have good hands, you need to know when to sit on them, to do nothing, to just watch and wait. And for many of us, that's a much harder thing to learn. The truth is that the great majority of births go well. There is some fairly decent data that suggests that even without any skilled medical care at all, more than 99% of women can be expected to survive childbirth. Add skilled medical care and the odds get much better. In the safest places to, to deliver in the world, which are currently in Northern Europe, both maternal and newborn death are almost vanishingly rare. But even now when I'm talking as an obstetrician about how most births go well, I'm talking about how many people don't die, which is a pretty impoverished definition of things going well. So maybe it's inevitable in a book about maternal death, but I think in the focus on safety and peril here, I kind of left joy out those last two pages that startled you were me saying, wait, wait, but birth is also just a remarkable and amazing thing. There's really no more fundamental process in human life. It's how every one of us got here. And yet it's also this astonishing thing to do. One person becomes two people through this process as a woman grows an embryo and then a fetus inside her own body from her own body and then delivers a newborn into this world. It's wild. I've seen this countless thousands of times and it never gets old. I Me mean, having a child is a vital part of becoming a full adult in Malawi and in many other places. A new baby is something that everybody, somebody that everybody celebrates and the new parents are celebrated too. So that celebration or that joy looks different in different places, but it is there in every community. I think as an obstetrician, I'm probably too focused on danger. And as an anthropologist, I'm reminded again and again of how transformative and how powerful birth can be. So you asked about collectively about the balance between potential risk and potential joy collectively for communities. And I was thinking about this and maybe at its best, our knowledge of the risk of pregnancy and birth and our knowledge of its joy can lead us collectively to greater respect for the people who do that work. Not to police them and constrain them and devalue them, but to support them and respect them as they do this remarkable and essential thing. It's a really brave act to step out there into the unknown and the unknowable. And every single pregnant person is taking that brave step. That's really amazing. Hmm.
0: Well, that is a very inspiring way to end, (laughs) Clara. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting to see the the... I don't know if it's a struggle, the dialogue between the the doctor and the medical anthropologist in you.
1: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting sort of binocular vision, but I, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so
0: we've already taken up a lot of your time today, Claire, but I did want to ask you what you are working on now or what you're about to work on next.
1: Well, I am so this book took me a really long time to work on and in part that's because you know life and other things got in the way and in part it's because it was pretty sad to work on um, so I'm in the very very early stages of two other projects which are almost too unformed to talk about but um, and we'll see if anything comes of either of them but one is I'm I'm in the early stages of working on a medical anthropology, a very short book about the core ideas of medical anthropology that I think are useful for clinicians. So something that medical students or residents or doctors could use. I think we have a few ideas in anthropology that I've found super helpful. Um, And this could be something that other clinicians could find helpful too. So early stages on that one. We'll see if anything comes of it. And then the second thing is with a couple of colleagues, I'm working, I'm, I'm starting, um, while we're really designing in the design phase of a project to gather stories about what makes, um, what makes life livable, livable, what makes a space inhabitable on this increasingly threatened planet. So what makes home habitable and to Design scenarios related to this about the how we see how we chart our paths into the future, right? So, what kinds of things can we do as communities that will lead us in different directions towards making the planet more habitable for ourselves and others? I think you can probably tell by the very abstraction of that description that it's in a super early stage, but um, <laughs> but I think it's an and we potentially have some interesting questions to ask, and I'm sure if we get to do the project. We'll learn cool things about how people are thinking and telling stories. That sounds
0: like a very big question. Yeah, I think questions. So <laughs> You're yeah, like the, the the world imaginary, right? Yeah, um, but I look forward to hearing what you find out. Thank you. Might yeah. might be a so, might be another decade. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> It sounds worthy of a decade, if if the world can wait that long, we'll see. Um, well, Claire, it's been really great speaking with you today. Thank you so much for coming here, and I want to remind everyone: the book is called "Partial Stories: Maternal Death from Six Angles" by University, of, well, from University of Chicago Press by Claire Wendland, uh, and it's really a moving book to read.
1: Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for these great questions that you asked today. I- Enjoyed our conversation.